The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. And what brings you here, big brother? Nah. Minor disagreement between me and a couple of the palace guards. How many did you injure? Twenty. But they started it. Baghdad has changed since you've been gone. I've noticed. It's not as friendly. Where are all our old friends? I landed in Balsura and the place was deserted. All the smart ones left once Prince Kassib and his new Grand Vizier started making the laws. Ah, uh, yes. I ran into them both today. Oh, it's terrible, Sinbad. The entire kingdom is run by the rich now. Men no longer live by their wits or by their swords, but by their wallets. They import and export goods, treating sailors like mere tools. We're told where to go and how to get there. Nothing but a bunch of seafaring donkeys. No time for adventure or exploring? No. Everything is about commerce now. Why, well, even magic has been outlawed. Impossible! Why, any idiot can see that the world is filled with magic. I mean, the growth of a flower is as magical as the flight of a dragon. Aye, but there's no profit in it. Anyone caught dabbling in magic is banished. Unless, of course, he's rich. Then he pays the Grand Vizier to look the other way and use a sorcery to make money. And it is Thursday, July 30th, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright And welcome to our show today where the theme is The Pope versus Capitalism The Public versus Capitalism And uh, the President of the United States versus Capitalism And Church and State together again Because that's going to be the basic theme of today's show 519-661-3600 The number to call if you want to join in on the conversation today and just in case I've forgotten to say it a few times, you can email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com or, of course, visit our website with all the past shows online at www.justrightmedia.org. Don't do that too often. By the way, from that last site, you can get to all the other things as well, including chrwradio.com and all the current broadcasting on chrw. Now... You know, the, the effects of a, and I do mean the effects of a universal hatred of capitalism and of freedom, is really growing at an accelerated and unprecedented rate. You see capitalism blamed for the financial failure of individuals and of governments alike. And so today I want to take a big, a bit of a look, you know, of how religion and mysticism work together to undermine freedom, capitalism, and morality, which is what the battle's all, all really about. It's all about self-sacrifice and altruism and uh, two philosophies that are always preached by those who seek to, quote-unquote, selfishly gain from them. 
Like the Sinbad characters depicted in the opening clip that we had today, they think that wealth is created by sorcery or something because they do not seem to understand the principles of morality and the proper things on which morality is based. And as a result, you see trade and mutual consent regarded as evil, while altruism and forced wealth redistribution are regarded as the good. So today we're going to take a closer look at these assumptions and hopefully be able to make a little bit of a dent in, uh, you know, and make a case for reversing entirely this whole altruistic moral code that is considered the good and which is destroying the good in the process. And it's something I've seen in action for years and years now. And the thing that started it off, I thought this was an older article. Actually, it's very current. This is just from July 8th, 2009, from uh, the National Post, written by Terence Corcoran. And it's called Caveat Vinaclium, and it was dated July 8th. And in there, and he says uh, that's bootleg Latin for beware free markets. Uh, oh, I forgot the word libertas at the end of that. And here's what uh, basically uh, Terence Corcoran said about uh, the latest encyclical. He says, the Roman Catholic Church has rarely shied from cashing in on the latest political and economic trends. So it should be no surprise that Pope Benedict XVI delivered a weighty encyclical on July 7th, 09, that catches the anti-capitalist waves now washing over the globe's political classes. The official Latin title of the encyclical, encyclical rather, Caritas in Veritate, in English translation means charity in truth. The new encyclical aims to drag the church back to the 1960s in the liberation theology-tinged 1967 encyclical of Pope Paul VI, entitled Populorum Progressio, written when half the world was under communist dictatorship, not a word was said of problems with Marxism. Pope Benedict cites Popular, Populorum Progressio dozens of times as a foundation for a renewal of the old leftist attacks on business, markets, and capitalism. As with all encyclicals, however, the attacks are incoherent, inconsistent, unsupported, and mostly catalogs of conventional leftist theories, end quote. And then Corcoran uh, gives some examples of these theories supported by the Pope, stressing each time that there is no objective evidence or support, support offered for any of the claims that is made by the Pope. The encyclical apparently, quote, dismisses outsourcing, end quote, or, of course, contracting out on the grounds that it can, quote, weaken the company's sense of responsibility towards stakeholders, workers, suppliers, consumers, the natural environment, and broader society, end quote. The encyclical invites more government control in the economy, arguing, quote, that the state's role seems destined to grow as it regains many of its competences, end quote. I don't know what he could mean by that. The encyclical demands that, quote, the technological, technologically advanced societies can and must lower their domestic energy consumption, end quote. And the encyclical condemns, quote, excessive zeal for protecting knowledge through an unduly rigid assertion of the right to intellectual property, especially in the field of health care, end quote. And on the issue of profit, the encyclical states, quote, Profit is useful if it serves as a means towards an end that provides a sense both of how to produce it and how to make good use of it, end quote. However, quote, once profit becomes the exclusive goal as, as its ultimate end, it risks destroying wealth and creating poverty, end quote. Um, 
you know, I look at these statements coming out of the Vatican, and they're so nonsensical on their face. You have to know something else is going on, right? But here's where Corcoran himself, I think, loses the ball. And he says, quote, Benedict dashes off these unsupported statements by the hundreds. Recommendations land arbitrarily out of the blue. What Benedict's encyclical betrays, most of all, is a willful disregard for economic history and the massive benefits of free markets and globalization. And, and, quote, and then Cor- Corcoran gets into, and this is important, he gets into a very accurate but totally unpersuasive you know, set of statistics and logical argument. And I think that's what all conservatives generally do. By trying to justify freedom and capitalism on the basis of their results and not on their cause, which is the proper moral foundation on which any civilized society should operate. And so, um, you know, in a July 8th National Post article, and this is a news article, says, uh, Pope urges New World Economy, reads the headline, uh, Benedict denounces profit as exclusive goal. And here it reads, in his third encyclical, the Pope criticized the United Nations and said a new organization with real teeth was needed to prevent another financial crisis, bring about peace, and reduce the gap between the rich and the poor. Progress would benefit the world only if it was based on a Christian humanism that took into account more than profit or self-interest. In rich countries, new sectors of society are succumbing to poverty. In poorer areas, some groups enjoy a sort of super-development of a wasteful and consumerist kind that forms an unacceptable contrast with the ongoing situations of dehumanizing deprivation. Corruption and illegality are unfortunately evident in the conduct of the economic and political class in rich countries, both old and new, as well as in poor ones. And uh, in several sections, Pope Benedict made it clear he had great reservations about a totally free market. The conviction, he says, that the economy must be autonomous, that it must be shielded from quote-unquote influences of a moral character has led man to abuse the economic process in a thoroughly destructive way, the Pope said. And that was the article from National Post. Now, what I want to know is how does one, quote, end quote, abuse voluntary consensual trade, which is the economic process? It's the only one I know about. Or, if, you know, or look at the other side of it. How can you consider corruption and illegality to be a quote-unquote economic process. The Pope makes absolutely no distinction between forcible theft and voluntary trade. So to me, you know, and in contrast to Terence Corcoran's conclusion that ignoring economic history is what Benedict's encyclical says most of all, I think what I've learned most of all is that the Church does not know the difference between right and wrong. On even so simple a capitalist principle as thou shalt not steal. So, you know, unless you make a moral argument for capitalism, which is one of the easiest things in the world to do, for heaven's sakes, and yet conservatives never do it, you know, unless you do that, you'll never persuade anybody about the quote-unquote benefits of free markets, no matter how much evidence you present. Facts do not matter to subjectivists and to mystics. It's just, that's a fact. (laughs) And we have to understand that good government originates in the moral faculty, not in the economic faculty. The second being a consequence of the first, as Isabel Patterson so often reminds us. And I myself have, you know, learned to emphasize and repeat this point uh, more often. 
And so it should come as no surprise that in its uh, July 22nd, 09 letters page, the National Post printed two criticisms from its readers against Corcoran, uh, Corcoran's defense of free markets on the very grounds that I've just been stating, his absence of making a moral case. Now, uh, Corcoran's critics are 100% wrong in their criticism, but their arguments... This is the important thing. Their arguments will win the day. If for no other reason, then they are making a moral argument and making it explicitly. And moreover, you know, they, each of these writers takes on a very Roman Catholic altruistic approach to politics and economics, each defending the Pope's encyclical against capitalism. And so, because of its moral condemnation of capitalism and profit not used for the common good, etc., the Catholic Church has escaped any meaningful consequences to criticisms of its own accumulated wealth, which, does, you know, which it chooses not to redistribute all, to all those less fortunate than those in the Vatican. Uh, you know, but that's not the case for another religious group, which is perhaps most ridiculed and vilified because of its association with capitalism and thus with wealth, property, and money, even though it may be false in most of the cases. And that, of course, is the Jewish faith. And that was an issue I discussed in some detail back on our show on money and on the meaning of money in its broader context and the historical context of taxes and, and even religion. I think we did a show where we certainly touched upon this. We're going to take a break soon, and after that, uh, we're going to take a look at the moral arguments made on behalf of the Pope's encyclical, while Corcoran is simply left holding the facts on his side, which no one necessarily disputes, and nobody really cares. And we'll see why on the other side of this break. Jewish kid goes to his father, says, Dad, can I borrow 50 bucks? Jewish father says, 40 bucks. What do you need 30 bucks for? I don't have 20 bucks. All right, anyway. Peter described me as a feminist and a socialist, and I'm both of those. And what I want to talk about tonight is why I think that socialism is the only truly moral system. I'd like us to begin by asking ourselves why the ideas which underlie capitalism or free enterprise still seem to have so much power so long after their point of creation. My honorable opponent, Leonard Plakoff, argued the case in pragmatic terms in his book. He wrote, historically, capitalism worked brilliantly. And yes, pragmatically, it's true, capitalism worked. But so did slavery, and so did, so did patriarchy, until they didn't work anymore. And both stopped working historically because the moral costs involved could no longer be borne of systems that work for the lucky few at the expense of the many who were dispossessed because of their color, their health, their age, their family heritage, or their sex. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Bob Metz, and we'll be with you from now till noon. That was socialist feminist Jill Vickers in the 1984 debate held at the University of Toronto in which she says that uh, Leonard Peikoff made a basically, uh, you know, uh, uh, just a, a pragmatic argument in, ca in favor of capitalism, which is, of course, completely false. Um, that was not what he was doing there. He went on for two hours exactly about the opposite of that. But 
you did hear her make the moral case, and she brought up that very case, and you're going to hear that being still made today. And except for people like Leonard Peikoff, the objectivist, and a handful of people, you will not hear people making a moral case for, uh, for capitalism because, A, they've had it drummed into them for years and years by church and state alike that capitalism is bad. And why do those two entities uh, say capitalism is bad? Because it's bad for them. That's why they say it's bad. Now, here are the arguments that Terence Corcoran left himself open to. Uh, basically, a moral attack against capitalism. And these are also the arguments to which you he rarely hear anyone speak, which kind of leaves me holding the bag again. And this is July 22nd, almost a day after. Uh, letters to the editor, National Post. There's a couple of them. In the first letter from British Columbia, writer Leslie Michael writes, quote, from, the, from Terence Corcoran's ramblings over Pope Benedict XVI's encyclical Caritas in Veritate, it is obvious his conclusions are the result of half-heard, half-read, and half-understood bits and scraps of information. He asserts that after 40 years of dramatic gains in global wealth expansion, after an explosion of living standards and productivity, Pope Benedict now comes along with a call to turn the clock back. What Mr. Corcoran fails to comprehend is, in fact, that none of the above involved uh, in any, quote, charity in truth. One has only to look at the lifestyles of the rich and famous to realize this. Now, I have to stop here for a second because, you know, there you go. One has only to look at the rich to realize that not everybody is rich, and therefore there has been a moral crime involved. So let's steal from the rich and give to the poor so that the poor can be greedy and indulgent too. That's what's being said there psychologically. But uh, to say, continue with the writer, he says, uh, we see people in their mansions working hard to acquire more wealth, even if it means swindling other people to buy a $6,000 shower curtain or a $14,000 umbrella stand or to spend millions on lavish birthday parties to impress their trophy wives. <laughs> now, end quote. Now, this person is clearly less offended by the swindle then he is envious of wealth. I mean, that just reeks out of this letter. And if this were not clearly so, he would never have mentioned on what the so-called swindled money was spent. And, and by using the term working hard in the same sentence as swindle so as to equate the two, he has done exactly what the Pope has done, eliminated morality from the picture altogether. Religion, that's why I say religion is always anti-moral. It's anti-life, it's anti-reason, and therefore it has to be anti-capitalism. And, you know, and the, and the writer concludes, if this is what Mr. Corcoran wants, he can have it. And, uh, and that's Leslie Michael, whose own self-confessed morality you know, is highly dubious, to say the least. Like all altruists, he wants the state to have a license to steal, not private individuals. Then there's a letter by Ontario writer Peter Kornikovic, who writes... Not many can articulate the supremacy of capitalism better. And for that, we, the readers of the Post, are duly fortunate, he says of, of Terence Corcoran. Both sides make great arguments on the nature of capitalism, he says. Um, I have to stop here because in actual fact, neither side made any arguments on the nature of capitalism at all, or only on his superior benefits. That's all they were saying. So the writer's first sentence was more accurate when he described Corcoran as an articulate defender of the supremacy of capitalism. But Corcoran said nothing about capitalism's nature. So already this writer is on the tail of a contradiction, so to speak, and will either be forced to walk on both sides of the line or make a false distinction. So here's what he says, quote, 
But I cannot help but comment that both sides are correct, <laughs> yet they also miss an important distinction. I just couldn't believe, I, I'd already realized that before I came to that sentence. As Corcoran argues, capitalism has provided the modern world with great economic wealth, which helps drive our ambitions to economic freedom, a virtue of self-reliance and liberty over the tyranny of dependence. Yet capitalism, without Judeo-Christian morality over the past millennium, would not be the success it has been or have had the ability to survive without the accepted virtues advocated. Capitalism is an economic system, and Christianity is a moral system. The obsessive pursuit of either extreme deflects the opportunity for further scholarship on the dualistic nature between reason and revelation, end quote. And, uh, you know, if that isn't as wacko as you can get in the world of reality, then I don't know what is. But here's my point. These wacko arguments are winning, are the winning arguments. Let's face it. If only because they have addressed what matters, and that is the moral question. But the real reason is this. No one makes a moral case for capitalism, and least of all, conservatives. You know, it's like Woody Allen always said, you know, just showing up is winning half the fight. Just show up, say something. <laughs> but nobody does that. Why, why don't conservatives state a moral case for capitalism? Why is it they don't do that? Well, if you stop to think about it, because to do so would do a couple of things. A, it would either reveal their own hypocrisy, since they're continually anti-capitalistic, or B, because they want to violate moral principles in order to do something for the common good, which is what causes point A. You know, all altruists psychologically say something like, uh, oh, gee, you know, I really know it's wrong to steal, but I really can't figure out another way to make the poor get richer without stealing. So we'll just avoid that whole moral que question altogether, shall we? Let's not discuss it, okay? We'll just leave it alone and, and make it go away, close our eyes. And uh, that, ladies and gentlemen, is why conservatism, uh, when and if it ever had something to do with freedom and capitalism, simply does not exist anymore. There is no philosophical or political identity in the mainstream thinking today that is anywhere near what I would call the true right. The, the, the two so-called left and right wings, which is why I always say at the beginning of the show, not right wing, uh, the, the left and right wings, they're both attached to the same loony left bird, okay? And that bird is an ostrich. It's got its head and its feet planted firmly in and on the ground of pragmatism, and which is therefore flying down and not up. And, uh, you know, maybe that's why all their ideas sound so tweety. Uh, <laughs> not to be confused with Twitter, which is the means by which they tweet, or is that how that works? I don't know. Going to take a, quick, a, bit, a bit of an early break here. Going to have some... Um, uh, ads and a few thoughts about freedom and morality. And we'll be back on the other side when we talk about church and state together again. In moving from the moral code to the question of the proper society for man, the first point to make is that to live, which means to use his mind and to act on the basis of his thinking, man in a social setting needs one thing, freedom. And this, in essence, means freedom from the initiation of physical force or fraud by others against him. This freedom is man's fundamental social requirement if he is to be able to live by his mind. It therefore is true that it is moral to be free. 
It's Jean-Luc Picard. Captain Picard. This is all beginning to make sense. Leave the trilithium here and take me with you. You can use me as a hostage instead of threatening it. I am not a terrorist, Captain, nor do I have a political agenda. Although I know some people who do have agendas. And they are very interested in this little container. Profit. This is all about profit. I prefer to think of it as commerce. And uh, that was, of course, uh, Captain Picard doing his anti-capitalist thing again. Uh, you know, given Terence Corcoran's uh, mention of a previous encyclical entitled Populorum Progressio, I thought it might be worthwhile to see what that encyclical was all about. Um, and that was called... Uh, it was actually ran into a 1967 July article written by Ayn Rand. In, uh, as part of a three-part essay in The Objectivist, and it was called Requiem for Man, in which she basically uh, criticized the encyclical. And um, here's, here's what she had to say, and I quote, uh, Pope Paul VI's encyclical, Populorum Progressio, on the development of peoples, is the manifesto of an impassioned hatred for capitalism. But its evil is much more profound, and its target is more than mere politics. On the question of capitalism, and in referring to the Industrial Revolution, the encyclical declares, quote, but it is unfortunate that on these new conditions of society a system has been constructed which considers profit as the key motive for economic progress, competition as the law of economics, and private ownership of the means of production as an absolute right that has no limits and carries no corresponding social obligation. But if it is true that a type of capitalism has been the source of excessive suffering, it would also be wrong to attribute to industrialization itself evils that belong to the woeful system that accompanied it. Since the encyclical is concerned, that's the end quote of the Pope, and then Rand continues, since this encyclical is concerned with history, and it's funny, Corcoran said it was evaded, but not so, and with fundamental political principles, yet does not discuss or condemn any social system other than capitalism, one must conclude that all the other systems are compatible with the encyclical's political philosophy. And this is supported by the fact that capitalism is condemned not for some lesser characteristic, but for its essentials, which are not the base of any other system. That is the profit motive, competition, and private ownership of the means of production. By what moral standard does the encyclical judge a social system, asks Rand. The encyclical's principle is clear. Only those who rise no higher than the barest minimum of subsistence have the right to material possession. And this right supersedes all the rights of all other men, including their right to life. This is stated explicitly, quote, As all men follow justice and charity, created goods should abound for them on a reasonable basis. All other rights whatsoever, including those of property and of free commerce, are to be subordinated to this principle, end quote. And then says Rand, remember that the rich, or the word, or the word rich, is a relative concept, and that the sharecroppers of the United States are fabulously rich compared to the laborers of Asia or Africa. Thus, while the entire encyclical is a plea for the products of industrial wealth, it is scornfully indifferent to their source. It purports to speak on a lofty moral plane, 
but leaves the process of material production outside the realm of morality, as if that process were an activity of a low order that neither involved nor required any moral principles. But the process of production is directed by man's mind. Man's mind is not an indeterminate faculty. It requires certain conditions in order to function. And the cardinal one among them is freedom. The encyclical insists emphatically on only two political demands, that the nations of the future embrace statism with a totalitarian control of their citizens' economic activities, and that these nations unite into a global state with a totalitarian power over global planning. The Catholic Church has never given up the hope to reestablish the medieval union of church and state, with a global state and a global theocracy as its ultimate goal. There is an element of sadness in this spectacle, notes Rand. Catholicism had once been the most philosophical of all religions. Its long, illustrious philosophical history was illuminated by a giant, Thomas Aquinas. He brought an Aristotelian view of reason, an Aristotelian epistemology, back into European culture and lighted the way to the Renaissance. Now, we are witnessing the end of the Aquinas line, with the Church turning again to his primordial antagonist, who fits it better, to the mind-hating, life-hating St. Augustine. When men give up reason and freedom, the vacuum is filled by faith and force. No social system can stand for long without a moral base. It is either or. If capitalism's befuddled, guilt-written apologists do not know it, two fully consistent representatives of altruism do know it. Catholicism and communism. Their differences pertain only to the supernatural, but here, in reality, on earth, they have three cardinal elements in common. The same morality, altruism, the same goal, global rule by force, the same enemy, man's mind. Thus, wealth acquired by force is rightful property, but wealth earned by production is not. Looting is moral, but producing is not. End quote. And that was ran back in 1967. Pretty well, uh, I would say, outdoing Terence Corcoran's analysis of the situation. But Terence was on, you know, he's saying, yeah, capitalism is superior. But uh, isn't there something wrong with that argument? I mean, if socialism had turned out to be superior in some small sense, and it could have been on some, on some level, let's say, if that was all you were judging it by, if you didn't care about violating people's rights, but it created an, you know, a pragmatic objective, then, then what argument have you got left to come back on if all you're arguing is, it works better, it works better? Uh, at what? You know, nobody even answers that. At what, you know? Um, now, on the subject of determining just what is the good when it comes to establishing uh, a moral standard. Uh, Dr. Leonard Peikoff notes, and you'll notice I always have to go to, to objectivism and, and, and to the philosophy of the objectivists. They're the only ones that ever approached any of this stuff rationally in a scientific way, which is probably why it's called objectivism. Um, you know, reality and reason being the system on which the whole philosophical thing is based, and that's the only valid possible philosophy that one could have. You can make a lot of mistakes on the way, but at least you have to know that those are the principles on which you will actually find out what life is really all about. And Dr. Peikoff notes, he says, quote, the ultimate value is life. The primary virtue is rationality. The proper beneficiary is oneself. And he says the alternative of existence or non-existence is the precondition of all values. Now, I picked those four points 
for a reason. And, uh, you know, Dr. Peikoff, he used Ayn Rand's example of, of an immortal robot, say somebody like Data on Star Trek or something, although we don't know how immortal he is. But, uh, you know, he concluded that an indestructible robot would have to be completely devoid of values, which only makes sense if you stop to think about it. If nothing can harm you, and if your own actions can never have harmful consequences, uh, you know, to yourself, not to others, you know, uh, then you have no reason to have values in the first place. You have no reason to have a moral code, which is one of the reasons Ayn Rand called one of her books The Virtue of Selfishness. It was there that she, you know, illustrated repeatedly and brilliantly of how placing others ahead of the, of the self as a moral standard, mind you, is the very thing that destroys morality. Altruism and self-sacrifice destroy morality, also destroy charity and all the things they're supposed to represent. And, and this is why morality is just as important to a man alone on an island as it is to individuals within a social community. And so to place the community interest above its constituent individuals in that community, above their interests, is to invert morality and make it work against the very people who are being moral and in favor of the people who are being immoral. And that is why. This is the point. I, I had this issue when I remember I was talking up at um, Upper Canada College about this. The kids were really uh, hot on this particular issue. They, oh, no, the beneficiary has to be somebody else. No, the legitimate beneficiary of morality has to be the self, not others. Because unlike robots, human beings are not indestructible and not immune to the negative consequences of their action. If they drink poison, they will die. So part of your value system has to be not to drink poison. And you better know that whether you're alone on an island or whether you're in a social setting. It doesn't make any difference. It's not about the other. It's about you. And so, you know, a moral principle, explains Dr. Peikoff, is, quote, a type of scientific principle identifying the relationship to man's survival of the various basic human choices he has. A man who acts, quote-unquote, on moral principle in this sense is neither a martyr, nor a zealot, nor a prig. He is a person guided by man's distinctive faculty of cognition. To be principled is the only way to achieve a long-range goal. This is the practical point missed by pragmatism, he says. And that little last little observation, I think it's kind of funny if you get the joke at all. Now, um, I've eliminated a few elements from this context of the discussion, most notably, I think, uh, the issues of knowledge and of judgment. Um, for example, is it immoral if you drank the poison I was talking about earlier, if you, if you drank it unknowingly? Or is it just immoral if you knowingly drink the poison, even though your intention is to survive and, and be healthy and live. And, you know, there's that biblical reference of Adam and Eve eating from the fruit of the tree of knowledge, which I've argued before on this show refers to the origin of morality, to the knowledge of the distinction between right and wrong, between what will kill you and what won't kill you. No more innocence, you know, no more paradise. Man was no longer ignorant and subject to the laws of nature. He could now command and master them but not by ignoring the laws of causality, which meant he needed a moral code in order to survive in reality. And, you know, today, the more popular religions tend to avoid knowledge and judgment, remain ignorant of the process of survival, 
and uh, in reality, and therefore they end up equating good with evil and right with wrong, and all to justify an agenda of altruism and state control, which the Roman Catholic Church states explicitly in each one of its encyclicals. So that's a political agenda, folks, not a religious agenda. I keep coming back to it. All religion is politics disguised. The Church is not called Roman Catholic without a reason. As I've stated before, note that the Church is not called uh, Roman Christian or Catholic Christian or Christian Roman or anything like that. The word, uh, the word uh, Christian isn't even there at all or even the word Christ. The word Catholic means universal. And the word Roman refers to the Roman state and the structure of the Roman state. So Roman Catholic is all about, and it was started by uh, Roman emperor as well. And uh, so Roman Catholic is all about a universal state and universal statism. Uh, you know, in its criticism of the UN, the Vatican said it lacked the teeth necessary to enforce a universal new economic system upon all of its member nations. You know, it sounds like a threat of force to me. Doesn't it sound like that to you? Um, which is where all faith systems inevitably lead. And that's why you see the most uh, faith-oriented parts of the world always mired in conflict and war. And especially when it's their intention to impose those faiths on others, which is the only way you can do it, because there's no reason to be faithful in the sense that, you know, you have to learn what somebody's uh, totally supernatural ideas are all about. And uh, it doesn't matter whether the ideas are supernatural, economic, or political. When people start trying to force them on you, you know you're going to be in trouble. So let's uh, take a break, and when we come back on the other side, we'll be talking about the religion of Obama and why it is so much just like the religion of the Pope. Don't uh, pass judgment on other people, or you might get judged yourself. What? I said, don't pass judgment on other people, or else you might get judged too. Oh, me? Yes. Oh, thank you very much. Well, not just you, all of you. That's a nice good. What? How much do you want for the good? I don't. You can have it. Have it? Yes. Consider the lilies. Don't you want a haggle? No, in the field. What's wrong with it, then? Nothing. Take it. Consider the lilies? Uh, Well, the birds, then. What birds? Any birds. Why? Well, have they got jobs? Who? The birds. Have the birds got jobs? What's the matter with him? Says the birds are scrounging. Oh, look, the point is, the birds, they do all right, don't they? Well, good luck to them. Yeah, they're very pretty. Okay, and you're much more important than they are, right? So what are you worrying about? They are, see? I'm worrying about what you've got against birds. I haven't got anything against the birds. Consider the lily. He's oh, having a go at the flowers oh, now. Give the flowers a chance. I'll give you one for it. It's yours, too, We also want to do this because it serves the most important goal we have today, which is to rebuild our economy in a way that's consistent with our values. An economy, and I want to, I want to describe to you the kind of, kind of economy that we want to build, an economy that rewards hard work and responsibility, not high-flying financial schemes.
an economy that's built on a strong foundation, but not one that's propelled by overheated housing markets and maxed out credit cards. In other words, we want to build an economy that offers prosperity for the long run. You remember that ad that they used to have out there that said, uh, we earn money the old-fashioned way, we earn it. Well, we need to get back to that philosophy. Because that's what all of you do. You're out there earning a living, and we've got to reward people who are working hard. Not the bubble and bust economy we've experienced in recent years. Yes, that was uh, Barack Obama, President of the United States, back on March 18th from a CNN. Um, I think it was one of those... Um, you know, meetings he was having with the public. I was in California at the time. Interesting hearing him talk about rebuilding an economy that's consistent with our values, that rewards hard work and responsibility, uh, builds on a strong foundation, that offers prosperity in the long run, etc., etc., rewarding people who are working hard. All sounds very capitalistic to me. But is that what Obama actually did? Was the bailout rewarding all the hard workers and if so who was being punished by the consequential high taxes and unemployment that inevitably resulted i want to know the answer to that one you know and that's the whole issue now interesting that this never came up in the public when it was actually originally published and um you know anyone who actually believes that by the way money is the root of all evil is a person who has no idea whatsoever about evil or about the nature of morality. Usually the statement hides a host of irrationalities on the part of the speaker. But if there's an ironic element of truth to the otherwise false statement that money is the root of all evil, it relates directly to the relativistic concepts of poverty and wealth. I'll give you an example. Peter and Paul, they're shipwrecked on a primitive island with no other human inhabitants on it. When they first land, there can be no disparity between poverty and wealth between them, since they're both in the state of nature. And there's no wealth in existence, so each of them are, to speak in economic terms, terms uh, equal, economically equal. But the moment that one of them becomes productive and the other does not, say Peter builds a hut or a fence or a fire, and then Paul will be poor relative to Peter. My goodness, Peter has created the poverty of Paul. How dare he? But is this act of production an act of injustice on Peter's part? Because that's how the church is looking at it. That's how all altruists look at it. Oh, my goodness, he, he made something. He, he created something. Oh, evil, evil. And that's what we get from the churches. And, you know... <laughs> So, because Peter builds a hut or a fence or a fire, Paul's poor relative to Peter. So, it's not an act of injustice on Peter's part, since he did nothing at all to Paul. Had Peter not chosen, or say he didn't even know how to build those things, then Paul would still be in the exact same situation as he was before without Peter, under either scenario. So, it is only in this very perverse way that wealth can be said to be the cause of poverty. But... Real poverty is caused only when governments do not allow their citizens to use their own minds in order to survive while acting on their own self-interest. So, for example, uh, let's say if Peter were prevented by force from exercising his mind to build a hut, which he otherwise knew how to build, or a fence, or a fire, or whatever, then he would be in a state of poverty, a true poverty. For without the invention of intervention of force, 
he would have been much better off. And that's what causes all poverty in the world. As we pour our billions into Africa and all these other countries that are, have, have a lot of problems, the problem is not that the people can't feed themselves. They can do quite well at that. It's just that there is a political apparatus and criminals and people running around with guns who won't let them. End of story. So you solve that problem, you can be pouring forever and ever and ever into those countries and never solve anything. They need the rule of law. They need to know that a contract is a contract. I've heard that from many people from that part of the, part of the world. But, you know... To simplistically compare the relative wealth of two people and use that as evidence of anything unjust is just about as unjust and moronic, I think, as you can get. Yet this is the very thing continually being used by politicians in their unceasing efforts to destroy wealth and create poverty. That's what they do. And only some kind of an irrational philosophy could make this possible because people are normally smart. You know, the brain is working. Something's wrong with the software somewhere. Uh, you know, which is why, uh, I come back to this now, why I was so astounded this past winter that in an interview with President Barack Obama, which appeared in the Reader's Digest this past February, uh, just amazed it didn't become a major news story and used as a reason to dismiss Obama as a left-wing religious zealot. I'll tell you, had this been a right-wing president saying these things, the liberal left would have been all over him in a pretty successful campaign to discredit him. But... The inconsistencies and irrationalities of the left just go uncriticized all the time and unheeded by a left-wing media that generally is subject to the same inconsistencies and irrationalities. So I guess it would be irrational to expect them to even notice it, wouldn't it? Um, despite all the talk you just heard you know, from Obama getting back to a system that rewarded hard work and all those n other nice-sounding capitalist things, we hear exactly the opposite message coming from him when it comes to the values upon which his favorite economic system would be based. And that is the value of communism and of Catholicism and of redistributing Peter's self-created wealth to the Pauls of the world. And this is from the February 09 uh, Reader's Digest, Canadian Reader's Digest, exclusive interview with U.S. President Barack Obama by Rick Warren. Which, by the way, was, I understand the interview actually took place before he was elected, but uh, very fascinating. When asked by Warren, quote, what would be the greatest moral failure of the United States, uh, Obama replied in reference to himself, quote, fundamental selfishness, end quote. And that the greatest moral failure of the U.S. was, he said, quote, we still don't abide by that basic precept in Matthew that whatever you do for the least of my brothers, you do for me. And that basic principle applies to poverty, racism, and sexism, end quote. Um, interesting, those are the very three words that socialist feminist Jill Vickers said back in 1984 that I played earlier, de demonstrating once again how focused the left remains over the years while the right wing bounces all over the place, never really realizing what's happening. They're just asleep at the wheel. Um, you know, Obama believes that he is doing God's will, and he says so explicitly. Get this, quote, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And there's an example, by the way, of moral redistribution. Someone else was forced to suffer for his sins. And he says, and that I am redeemed through him. That is a source of strength and sustenance, on, my, my source of strength and sustenance on a daily basis. I know that I don't walk alone, and I know that if I can get myself out of the way, that I can maybe carry out in some small way what he intends. And it means that those sins that I have on a fairly regular basis, hopefully, will be washed away. But what it also means is a sense of obligation to embrace. 
not just with words, but through deeds, the expectations that God has for us. And that means thinking about the least of these. And the end, end quote. And then when asked, what's worth having the sacrifice of lives for? Obama replies, well, obviously, American freedom, freedom, American lives, and American national interests, end quote. That's why people should die. And when it came to concrete specifics, such as abortion, upon being asked, at what point does a baby, I notice he didn't say a fetus, but a baby get human rights in your view, Obama replied, well, I think that whether you're looking at it from a theological perspective or a scientific perspective, answering that question with specificity is above my pay grade, end quote. And so I'm sitting there left, you know, but what about the moral perspective? No answer. You know, theology and science are not about morality. He acknowledges the moral issue by saying that he's convinced that there is a moral and ethical element to the issue. But then he says he's pro-choice because, quote, I don't think women make these decisions casually, end quote, which doesn't speak to any moral principle whatsoever. And, uh, you know, Obama, here's one. How come he didn't get raked over the coals for this? He, he defines marriage as, quote, the union between a man and a woman. Now, for me as a Christian, it is also a sacred union, end quote. But on the other hand, he would not support a U.S. constitutional amendment with that definition, preferring instead to dump the problem on the individual states. Sounds like what they're doing down there is what we're doing up here. Uh, province and federal, dump it on each other. Municipalities come in handy every now, now and then, too. But um, so sometimes he allows his Christianity to be his guide, but at other times it's apparently very inconvenient. Um, Obama acknowledges, quote, that evil does exist, end quote, but offers no definition of either good or evil. However, he seems to know that, quote, it is very important for us to have some humility in how we approach the issue of confronting evil, because a lot of evil has been perpetrated based on the claim that we're trying to confront evil in the name of good. Just because we think our intentions are good doesn't always mean we're going to be doing good, end quote. So, interesting he has that admission. I'd want to kind of know what I was doing before I ran into it. But, as you can see, Obama's right in tune with Pope Benedict XVI, for the most part. On abortion, they don't agree. But uh, both of them, Pope and Obama, are both on Facebook. Both employ the web, iPhones, and iPods to market themselves. Both are anti-capitalist and anti-freedom, while hypocritically paying lip service to those values. Both the Pope and Obama have confronted evil with their humility. And evil has been rejoicing, let me tell you. Both have, quote, reached out to the Muslim world, which has explicitly, that part of the world, which has explicitly stated its hatred for Jews, Christians, women, atheists alike. It is a world that completely endorses church and state in combination, and which despises democracy, freedom, and capitalism, and repeatedly says so officially and explicitly and consistently, never wavering over the centuries. So... You know, religion and politics are the handmaidens of irrationality in our world, and together they have killed, murdered, and tortured more people in any given year than all of mankind's actual criminal behavior and history combined. And I just don't know how many more centuries we have to go through before we realize this. Um, you know, Ayn Rand once, once explained that if you really want to understand why the world is in such a mess politically, she warned people that you shouldn't be focusing on what you consider to be uh, immoral or wrong as the cause of such problems. 
It's actually, and I think Isabel Patterson said this as well, you know, it's actually the, the value system that we hold to be true and right and the good that is the cause of the problems. Because those are the moral principles on which people act. And if you believe something to be good and you actually honestly believe it, and there's a lot of people that are in that category, um, they will act accordingly, even though the results of their actions may be destructive. And of course, in a word, that word today is altruism, which has been held as, as, as the moral standard by which people are judged. Uh, you see it all the time. Uh, you know, it's like altruists, you know, they, they praise Bill Gates when he's given his money away. They despise him when he's earning it and getting wealthy in the process. Yet, you know, the latter process has to take place before the former can. But, the, but it does not justify. You, don't, you, know, you shouldn't just be allowed to, to earn millions because... Uh, you're going to give it away later. That's, you know, that's how altruists would think. And that's completely destructive to the very wealth itself. Um, and that is altruism in practice. It creates a hatred of the good for being good and a love of the evil because it is evil. And I do not use these terms in any reference, as you know, in any religious sense. Um, income tax, <laughs> a perfect example of punishing productivity for its own sake. You know how they say a fine is a tax for doing bad and a tax is a fine for doing good. <laughs> and then we wonder why the world seems to be getting less good with each passing year. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's bad. Not, not too happy about the future, politically speaking. Politically, I don't think the world's heading to a very nice place. Uh, what most people believe to be the good is, in fact, the evil. And, uh, you know, even that itself has been stated in religious folklore in so many ways, the Antichrist and all these things, because they're just basic, um, you know, issues of, of, of humanity that you always run into. Who do you trust? How do you, how do you know what's right, what's wrong? You're always under the same test. But um, as Leonard Peikoff reminds us, and many times Captain Kirk reminds us too on Star Trek, but uh, I'll just stick with Leonard Peikoff for right now. He says, quote, evil is powerless and therefore can exist only as a parasite on the good. The good is the rational. The evil is the irrational. Now, evil has to count on some element of good. It can exist only as an exception to virtue on which it is relying. A producer does not need a burglar, but a burglar does need a producer because that's the person he's preying on, and, uh, and that's P-R-E-Y. Um, evil is not consistent and does not want to be consistent, says Peikoff. To be evil, quote-unquote, only sometimes, is to be evil. The power of good, he reminds us, is enormous, but depends on its consistency. And that's why the good has to be an issue of basically all or nothing, black or white. And that's why evil has to be partial, occasional, gray, as he would put put it. And, you know, that's why I always say, uh, end quote there anyway, uh, that some things are black and white. And um, that's basically uh, reality, reason, self-consent. And that's essentially what this show is all about and always has been about since uh, since we started doing it. Just as a, as a footnote, how much time have I got left there, Taff? A couple minutes? About two minutes? Um, just ran into a couple of uh, footnote articles here that I dragged with me. I noticed here, this National Post, uh, May 19, Francis Carla Bruni Sarkozy, uh, Sarkozy, Sarkozy sorry, criticizes Pope over AIDS in Africa. And apparently she did something unprecedented as a first lady uh, criticizing the Pope over his approach to contraception in Africa. 
saying it was, quote, so damaging it had left her questioning her own faith in the church. In March, Pope Benedict provoked controversy while on tour in Africa by saying that the continent's AIDS pandemic can't be resolved with their distribution of condoms. On the contrary, there's a risk of increasing the problem. And, uh, you know, the French president's wife says, I was born Catholic, I was baptized, but in my life I feel profoundly secular. Interesting comment to make. I find that with a lot of people who call themselves Catholic. And she says, I find the controversy coming from the Pope's message, albeit distorted by the media, is very damaging. I think the church should evolve on this issue, she says. And, um, of course, he's been doing that, too. The Pope has also adopted green, as he did when he went on his uh, tour uh, to Australia earlier on. I think we talked about that on the show. Another interesting thing I found on the Vatican here was a little headline. I think this is from the London Free Press, Associated Press. Church never fears the truth of science, you know, because... uh, which is a complete conflict. Of course they don't fear it because it doesn't make any difference to them. Faith isn't based on fact and reality, and so why should they fear it? But they say here, uh, quote, the church never fears the truth of science because we are convinced that all truth comes from God. Science will help our faith to purify itself, and faith at the same time will be able to broaden the horizons of man who cannot just enclose himself on the horizons of science. So, you know, there you go again, uh, the contrast between faith and science. I mean, what, what can, what does faith have to offer science? What could you learn about all those planets and exoplanets and things I talked about last week based on faith? Not too much. Got to wrap it up here. I'm getting the signal. So we'll leave you till next week, and we hope you'll join us again when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Fade into color, color into black and white. When you die, though, they, uh, they say uh, they see a bright white light. You ever hear that? There it is. Bright white light. Go to the light. Kind of suck if that's all it was, though. Just a guy with a flashlight. I didn't think he'd come. <laughs>